Gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago. But over four years ago, during the summer of 2018, while I was wrapping up the Essential Oils Hormone Solution book, a series of symptoms screamed so loud at me that I finally decided to run a full thyroid panel along with two thyroid antibody tests, thyroid peroxidase antibody, known as TPO, and thyroid globulin antibody, TGAB. Now, the diagnosis came shortly after the labs were ran, and it was low thyroid function driven by a number of root causes, including the autoimmune condition Hajimoto's thyroiditis. Now, I want you to know that I went undiagnosed for about three to five years, and that's the case for most women. It takes an average of five to 10 years to get an official diagnosis for low thyroid function and Hajimoto's. It gets undiagnosed for millions of women every single year. And to be honest, I, like most women, initially thought it was just stress, or it was my adrenals, or it was my energy levels, and I thought it had a lot to do with my book deadline that was coming up very tight. But after implementing some protocols that had worked for me in the past, I still felt crappy and my weight wasn't coming off. Plus, my hair was getting thinner and my eyebrows were losing hair. I mean, there were a lot of symptoms that were chalking up to low thyroid function. Now, I'm not going to lie when I tell you that I was devastated by this diagnosis back in 2018 and felt pretty embarrassed that I kept missing it for a couple of years. And that's because when I did a not so extensive thyroid panel, one that traditional doctors would run that I would just do with my GP, even though I knew better, everything was looking pretty good. And therein lies the problem. Many people are being overlooked because their initial panel, the thyroid panel and labs, look okay enough or even great. But that doesn't mean that your body isn't having massive inflammation and metabolic dysfunction and a part of that inflammation could be having an impact on your thyroid. So my diagnosis was like so many things, a blessing in disguise. It really taught me how to dial in my health better than ever before, although I had been doing a lot of the right things. And it actually influenced the creation of my 14-day detox program, which thousands of people have done since, and many of which are women with autoimmune conditions and metabolic issues like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now today, because I still have thyroid questions coming up, and to be honest, I am still on my own thyroid journey. Like my thyroid journey during pregnancy, postpartum, and even during breastfeeding is a slightly different thyroid journey than it's been before when I decided to conceive and become a mom. And I'm really grateful to have really incredible thyroid gurus with me, along with knowing a lot about thyroid myself. But my one guru and the woman who takes care of me is McCall McPherson. Now she was on the show back in 2018, but it's been a while and I feel like it's time to have another conversation about the commonality of thyroid issues today for women and address the really big elephant in the room. And that is, what if your thyroid is actually the problem? We are going to dive into every aspect of thyroid care today, from symptoms to diagnosis to treatment protocols and symptom management, and exactly what you can do, what you can expect, and what is the like the overview of what life can look like if you've got low thyroid function moving forward. Now, before I jump into this epic conversation with McCall, which by the way, goes well over an hour because man, we get into the nitty gritty, like questions that you've always wanted to know that even your doctors don't really have answers for, we answer them here today. But first, I wanted to quickly share a very fun and epic podcast giveaway that I'm doing for the next seven days to celebrate 500 freaking episodes here on the show. 
I just want to take a moment and tell you, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. There is no way I would have ever reached 500 episodes without your listening support. I will never take for granted you taking the time to show up and listen. I will also never take for granted your commitment to yourself and your health, and also that you have shared this show with women, either your best friends, your mom, your sister, your cousins, even colleagues, or maybe a stranger that you met in your yoga class. You are the reason why this show has grown to almost 7 million downloads to date. It's incredible. It's one of the biggest shows on women's health out there, and it's all because of you. Now, I want to kick off the celebration. It's going to be a seven-day giveaway starting today on March 3rd, 2023, and it will go until March 7th, 2023. I am going to be giving over $500 in prizes, including Apple AirPods Pro, which are valued at $250, my complete women's hormone kit, which features five of my mega best-selling supplements in the Essentially Whole store, including Activated Be Complete, Hormone Balance, Liver Support, and Progest Restore, valued at over $175, and my women's essential kit, plus you're going to be getting a menopause solution book as well, valued at over $100. Now there's going to be three winners. I'm going to be announcing them on Tuesday, March 14th, after the giveaway is completely done. Now the intention here is I'm looking for you to subscribe and review this show. So all you got to do to enter to win is subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes, which is really the best place to do it. But honestly, whatever platform that you tune into this show, by all means, subscribe and review there. And then you're going to submit your name and your information to the link drmarisa.com slash 500 giveaway. That's drmarisa.com slash 500 giveaway. Now I'm going to have the link in the show notes for this episode, episode 499. Yes, we are one day away or one more episode away from episode 500. Or again, just go to drmarisa.com slash 500 giveaway. Now, my goal right now is because this show has been established and we've got almost 7 million downloads at this point is to have a thousand reviews on iTunes. And we are so close. We're at 730 reviews so far, at least from when I looked about a week ago. So will you please help me reach this goal by reviewing this show? I'm talking about just rate it. You know what I'm saying? You don't even have to write a review, right? I'm not asking for you to write a review. I just want you to rate the show. You are going to help other women get to these episodes, get to this information, get to these interviews, interviews like today's interview that is going to be crazy game-changing, right? And so that women have research-based recommendations and solutions for their symptoms so that they don't feel like they're crazy and they feel like they can take their health into their own hands because guess what? No one's here to save us, right? No one's going to be helping us the way we're going to help ourselves. And let's be honest, we're women. We know how to do that. As long as we have the information, we can execute, right? So that's why I'm excited for this giveaway. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Now I want to dive into this incredible conversation with McCall McPherson, my thyroid doctor or my thyroid practitioner. But first I want to sing her praises. Hey, one more thing. Did you know that one of the biggest nutrient deficiencies that I see in people, especially women, is a magnesium deficiency? It's because we burn through this super mineral so quickly. Now this powerful mineral packs a massive punch because magnesium is involved in over 600 reactions in the body. Now it is your best friend if you need more energy, better sleep, a faster metabolism, improved digestion, and not to mention happier periods. And you can quickly replenish your magnesium levels with my Essentially Whole Magnesium Restore Supplement made with my favorite form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate. 
Use promo code PODCAST and get 10% off your entire order at drmarisa.com slash magnesium. Now I'll have the link in the show notes for this episode to make it easy. Go and try it out today. McCall McPherson is the founder of Modern Thyroid Clinic, a thyroid-centered functional medicine practice in in Austin, Texas, and the owner and chief hope giver of Thyroid Nation. She is a physician assistant. She's a TEDx speaker and a thyroid expert by way of being a thyroid patient herself. Her passion for perfecting thyroid treatment stemmed from years of suffering due to the mismanagement of her own hypothyroidism. Now she lives and breathes and thrives in the understanding and the nuances of proper thyroid care. Her philosophy is simple. There is no reason to still have thyroid symptoms. She spends her time with patients to help them get their lives back and teaching and advocating for the other millions suffering who aren't her patients, right? Because at the end of the day, she can only see so many people, but there's millions of women suffering. Either they do not know they have thyroid issues or they are being so mismanaged when it comes to thyroid medication and protocols. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm going to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. McCall, honey, how are you doing today, girl? I'm so good. I'm so grateful to be back here. Thanks for having me. It is so good to see your face. I love it. Well, I just want to sing your praises really quickly, although I will be doing that in my intro outro as well. But that McCall, you have been my incredible thyroid expert, just walking me through the journey after getting diagnosed with Hajimoto's back in 2018 and walking me through pregnancy and getting pregnant, you know, postpartum, breastfeeding, that whole, just whole beautiful journey. I'm so grateful that I still get to be working with you. And, you know, you're you're just an angel because there's so many women out there who, as we know, are struggling with those thyroid function or thyroid issues and don't even know it, like have no idea. They keep getting the runaround. They get misdiagnosed or they're told that everything looks normal because the labs that they, you know, that are being looked at or being observed are not enough to give you the full picture of what is going on. So I'm just so grateful to you for doing the work. I also want everyone to know as you're listening to this or maybe even watching this on YouTube that McCall, this is all she does. Like she lives and breathes thyroid all day, 24-7. Well, also she's a mama and she's, she's very dynamic Yeah, and she sleeps, right? Yeah. But that I just want you to know that I have brought on one of the best experts who sees people from all over the world, predominantly women, because 75% of women are the ones who are dealing with these issues. And so there's an expert to be called to this occasion. It is you. Well, thank you. You made me tear up. It's my honor to walk this road with you and so many other women. I mean, those women that you described, those are my people. Those are like the people that my heart goes out to because I was one of those, just like you. I was told over and over, hey, it's not your thyroid. No, your numbers are fine. No, your medication's fine. Well, I was, you know, a non-functioning human. So it's so nice to be in a situation where we can help support those women for sure. I'm so glad that you mentioned that this has been your journey too, you know, and your calling because of your journey. Would you like to speak a little bit into your journey and um, just kind of the the metamorphosis of choosing for this to be one of your biggest purposes? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I started out as a, I'm a PA, I'm a physician assistant, practicing medicine, had a long-term thyroid disorder. At 27, though, I started not being able to function. I would go to work in the morning, I would come home at three, and then I would be in bed all night. 
And that went on honestly for the better part of a year, the whole time I was trying to advocate for myself, get better information, get more labs, see if I could change my medication and just repeatedly, repeatedly shot down by my doctor. And it feels like it feels kind of hopeless when you're so tired and you have to search out all these new answers. Eventually I found my way to an integrative medicine doc, who is one of the only people that really kind of knew the ropes around the complexities of thyroid. And he really honestly gave me my life back in two months. So I was a completely different person. I tell my patients this often. I think by now I would be on disability if he hadn't given me my life back. Like it's just such a profound change really quickly. He became a mentor to me. And, you know, I honestly started passively treating thyroid disorders while practicing psychiatry. That was my niche integrative psychiatry, but eventually I had fixed you're not going to believe this and you might not even know this, but eventually I fixed so many people with treatment resistant depression that actually had a thyroid disorder mm -hmm. that those people took my information. They spread it all over the internet and they created my practice for me. Like no one was coming to see me for psychiatry anymore. Everyone was coming for thyroid. So eventually from that modern thyroid clinic was born. And now I get to serve and give back to these women. You know, it's wonderful for them because I get to change their lives, but it's also wonderful for me because I get to change their lives. So mm. it's just a win-win for everybody and such a, a beautiful thing that we've built for sure. Oh my goodness. That, it's such an incredible story. I did not know that. And I want to just try to sidetrack, although I'm about to quick fire questions at you, girl, like you ain't never seen. But the thing I wanted to speak into, because one of the, I've been doing a lot of research on cardiometabolic health. And one of the things that I was reading a lot about was that depression is 1.7 fold higher in women than men. Although we often think of men when we think of depression, I think like as a society, but it was really fascinating because we know that there's a lot of root causes that are driving depression, anxiety, a lot of the, the mood disorders that we're seeing today and low thyroid function is absolutely one of them. And so can you speak to the connection there? Because I know that there are so many women, that's one of the mixed diagnosis is that they're getting treated for depression and anxiety. And there's no root cause of looking at, well, do you have an underactive thyroid or do you have an autoimmune condition that could absolutely be driving the shift in neurotransmitters in your brain? Right. And I'll tell you, I mean, I would estimate 30 to up to 50% of my patients have been told by a doctor before they see me that they're just depressed. And that's the reason why they have all of this fatigue and brain fog. And really, you know, with hypothyroidism, one of the classic symptoms is depression. It just slows neurotransmitter formation. It slows hormone production. You know, everything just slows down and almost dries up and puts people into this hibernation state where they just can't really get up and about, they can't function. And that is just breeds more depression because they don't have the energy to feel good and create a life that sustains them and fulfills them. So it's neurochemical. And then it's also just the downstream impact of being tired all the darn time. Yeah. I was going to say like, again, your brain runs to your metabolism. It's a big part of that. And if your metabolism is significantly slowed down because you don't have enough thyroid function to run it, also your gut is absolutely impaired as well, which we know a big source of our serotonin comes from. You know, you're talking about a double, triple whammy here that can lead to feeling depressed. So let's talk a little bit about, I know that there are people struggling with hyperthyroid as well, but I want to specifically speak to, I know that, and you can tell me, how often are you seeing patients with hyperthyroid versus hypothyroid? Oh gosh, I would say one out of every 500 of my hypothyroid patients is hyper. So okay. I definitely see Graves hyperthyroidism extraordinarily more rarely than I see hypo, which is just a pervasive problem. 
Okay. I wanted to just address that because I know sometimes when I talk a little bit of hypothyroidism, when I am, you know, posting on social or I've had people come and talk to me after a podcast episode that some have come with hyper. And I wonder at times, because I know with Hajimoto's, especially in the beginning of Hajimoto's, people can swing. So talk to me a little bit about that. Again, again, I want to focus mostly because if the majority of us are struggling with hypothyroidism, I really want to put our focus there as well. But, you know, talk to me, why is it that when we're dealing with an autoimmune condition such as Graves or Hajimoto's that we can swing one way or the other? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. In fact, like, and no one's ever asked me this question, but about 40% of my Graves patients also have Hashimoto's antibodies at the exact same time. Um, so simultaneously they have Graves and they have Hashi. Um, we know obviously that when you have one autoimmune disease, you're at risk for developing another upwards of over 30%. So, you know, those really the driving factor of these autoimmune disease, that core root cause is the same. So it can drive Hashi or it can drive Graves or it can drive both, or it can switch, but that inflammatory syndrome that's creating and propagating that autoimmune reaction is that core piece of, you know, the core thing that's responsible. And I know a lot of our time today is going to be focused on Hashi. So I'll give like a couple tips for Graves people that they can dig into on their own for sure. Number one, and you know all about this, I'm sure is LDN or low-dose naltrexone. A hundred percent of my Graves patients are on low-dose naltrexone. It reduces the severity and frequency of the swings of Graves, which is such a big deal. And then the other thing that I really advocate for, for Graves patients, that's hard to find, but if you know to look for it, it sure is helpful, is something called block and replace therapy. It's an incredible modality of treatment for these people. So if you have graves and you're listening, like those are giant pearls for you. So go search, search out some info on that. Awesome. And go and check you out as well, just in case. Okay. So let's go back to hypothyroidism. And I want to talk about the root causes, one of which being Hajimoto's thyroiditis. So can you in general, just break down what low thyroid is? I know how we diagnose it. We're going to get into that too, but kind of the overview of low thyroid function and what are the biggest drivers of low thyroid function? Yeah. So, you know, if we think about symptoms, right? So things that you might have that would say, maybe I need to get screened for this are fatigue, brain fog, weight gain, weight retention, dry skin, brittle nails, brittle hair, low sex drive, constipation, loss of the outer portion of your eyebrows, cold intolerance, depression, even some anxiety, especially. So, those are kind of your telltale signs. So if you have those, hey, perk up, this is what something that you might want to be screened for and look into. You know, there's various driving factors for hypothyroidism for sure. One, of course, is the autoimmune component, Hashimoto's, which we've mentioned. That's where your body actually just attacks your thyroid gland. And when it attacks it, it erodes away that hormone secreting tissue and replaces it almost with this scarry inflammatory tissue that doesn't function as well. It doesn't really secrete hormones as efficiently. So over time that leads you with hypothyroidism. So um, research shows that that kind of accounts for 80 ish percent of hypothyroidism. The other portion that honestly I see more often than not in my clinic is this slow breakdown of women's thyroid gland over time. And I say women's, of course it can happen with men too, but I definitely see it predominantly in women kind of like, you know, how we just, our hormone secretions in general slow down our estrogen or progesterone, everything starts to kind of wane off as we age. I see that also with the thyroid gland where, Hey, at least people don't have active Hashimoto's. We test them to look, but they definitely have hypothyroidism. And even in Austin, where I'm in Austin, we're a really health conscious city. For the most part, people are healthier than they are in the majority of the country. 
I see an enormous amount of people with hypothyroidism without Hashimoto's. It's probably even more in my practice than Hashi patients, which is crazy. It doesn't align with the research, but it's a really, really significant problem. Yeah. And I want to dig into that because the last time I had you on the show, you talked about if not, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when is what you said. And that was hard. I was gut punching, right? And so when do you see, if it's a matter of when, and I'm talking about when we start to see women showing signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism, whether it's Haji's or not, whether it's Hajimoto's driven or not, is often, I believe you said like mid 40s ish is when we start to see some of that come on. Yeah, I'd say mid 30s to 40s, definitely with deviations on either end in the 20s and later. A lot of women will wait to get diagnosed because they just push through. They think, I'm tired because I'm pregnant. I'm tired because I have a toddler. I'm tired because my kids are in elementary school. And they do that until all their kids go to college. And then they come to see me and they're like, well, I didn't really have an excuse or why I feel like this anymore. So figured I may as well get a workup, but no, it's happening in thirties. It is happening in forties. And honestly, it's happening in twenties as well. Oh, goodness. It's good to know. So it should be a part of our annual exam really as early as our twenties that we should be running a full panel of our thyroid. And that segues me into... What does it look like to demand? Because I really do feel like we have to demand. I always tell women to like have them written out and like literally hand it to your doctor and be like, I want all of this run. I want all of it done. And so talk to me about what a full thyroid panel looks like. And are there other things that we need to be looking at, like C-reactive protein? Should we be looking at iron levels, vitamin D levels? Like what are other adjunct labs that we should consider alongside of a full thyroid workup? Yeah. So kind of baseline thyroid workup is TSH, free T4, free T3, reverse T3. And that's like your thyroid function. In addition to that, I think everyone should be screened for Hashimoto's, which is TPO or thyroid peroxidase antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies. So that's kind of a good annual thing you need to get screened for your thyroid. If you have a thyroid condition, those need to be checked every single time as well. If you have a thyroid condition and you have daughters, I tell people, look, start screening your kids, especially if you have autoimmune thyroid issues, even when they're in elementary school, middle school, because it's happening earlier and earlier in my opinion. So take that for what it's worth. In addition to that, I like to look at long-term health markers for my patients. So I want to look at your hemoglobin A1C and your fasting insulin. So that tells me what does your blood sugar metabolic function look like? One of the long best predictors for your long-term health outcome is your fasting insulin. So is that insulin really sensitive? I think that should be checked at least every year. C-reactive protein is another one that I really value and pretty much every one of my patients gets checked. It is an inflammatory marker. Inflammation drives chronic disease. It drives aging. It drives the breakdown of our body over time. And so if we can get a snapshot of what people's inflammation looks like, on an annual basis and see how it changes. Super helpful. It also can be used to risk stratify the likelihood of someone having a cardiovascular event, something like a heart attack or a stroke in the future. So again, very powerful information. And really, if you capture this data over time, when something changes, you know, because you have years of data to look back on. I also do in all of my patients, we check hormones. So we check estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, your adrenal hormone, sex hormone binding globulin. So those are like baseline things that I deal with all day, every day, for sure. And when it comes to the sex hormones, I know that you can test thyroid. Let's talk a little bit about actually testing thyroid, whether you're testing for it initially versus testing for it with medications. 
So I know that, and mind you, you have a lot of great resources too, where people can like cue into all of this, but that's why I'm not going to ask you to go over ideal or optimal thyroid numbers. Cause I just feel like it's going to just get a little bit crazy here in the show, but note that information is available 100%. And I know that you've got it. Not only do you talk about it on Instagram, you're talking about it on TikTok, but also it's available on your website as well. So, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, testing for thyroid and then testing for sex hormones. Can we do it all at once or should we wait for a specific time to be testing our sex hormones as well? Yeah. So thyroid wise, let's talk about on versus off of medication. Off medication, it's easy. You can go anytime, any day, not time dependent, not time of your cycle dependent, you're free. Once you get on medication, particularly medications with T3 in them or active thyroid hormone, those are meds like Cytomel, Lyothyronine, NP thyroid armor. You want to check those labs while you're on your medication, because you want to know, Hey, what is your medication doing? Where is it putting your level? If you check it a day after you've taken your medication, you're chronically going to be low because you're medication short acting. So with Cytomel or Lyothyronine, I encourage people to go two to three hours after they take it. That's the peak with armor or NP three to four hours after they take it. And it is your peak. So you're not sitting there all day, but it sure will tell you what the highest dose, the highest level that you get every day. So that is that hormone wise. It is so, and I see crazily, I see GYNs mess this up all All day, every day. So our hormones, women, we know this, they are like up and down and roller coasters. They're all over the map throughout our cycle. So if we just check them on a random day, we don't know how to plot them and predict where they should be and compare them to optimal because we're doing it blindly. So in my opinion, the best time to check hormones is the midway point between ovulation and your next period. So if your cycle is 28 days, roughly 27 to 29, that usually falls about day 21. Mm -hmm. So it's about a week before your period, a week after, after ovulation that tells us uniquely the peak of your progesterone, which is so freaking important to feeling good and not being a basket case while you're PMSing. And it also tells us about the midway peak of your estrogen. So lots of valuable information there. Whereas if you check it on day nine, everything's really low. So we don't really have a good picture as to what's going on. Absolutely. Okay, great. Good to know. So yeah, I always tell people, yeah, midway through seven days minus your day one of your period, which is the first day of your bleed, that'll give us some good information. And if you're not doing it already, please, 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 please track your cycle. Track your cycle. (laughs) Okay. And I, the reason why I asked too, is, you know, for me, you know, with, I'm working with you, I'm on armor and I'm on Cytomel. So I go in at exactly three hours because that's the, the intersection between the two. So that's usually where I go in. So if I'm taking my, I'm usually fasting that day because I'm running all the other labs. I'm running my fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C. I'm doing the whole thing. Um, C-reactive protein. So I'm always fasted 12 hours. And then I make sure I, I'll even take it earlier in the morning. If I go in at nine, I'll make sure to take it at 6 a.m. So that by, at nine o'clock when they're doing the draw, it's right on. And this is really important because, you know, your practitioner, especially if you're working with a functional practitioner, they're going to want to see what it looks like when you're on your medications, when they're at peak inside of the bloodstream. So I just wanted to speak to that from my own personal experience and how I make that work. Okay. Okay. So now we've talked a little bit about sex hormones, running labs, what the labs look like, what other labs to be considering when it comes to overall metabolic and thyroid health, because it's all interconnected. I want to dive into medications 
Let's talk a little bit about medication. I got a lot of questions around medication. Sorry, I had a little pause because I was thinking about how I wanted to kind of work all of this in. So a lot of women, they come into their doctor, they don't get that full panel run, let's just be honest, and they are often put on a T4 medication more often than not. And they often, they don't even know if they look for Hajimoto's or not. So there's not even a clear indicator if there's Hajimoto's on the scene that's actually driving this hypothyroid issue. Talk to me about medication, efficacy, efficiency, and what you have seen. Because I know I find that the standard of what's being recommended isn't always working for women. And they often, if they ever even feel better, I find that they feel like crap within a couple of months afterwards. Yes, I actually call that the four stages of Synthroid. So here, know that my perception of this is skewed. So I am not someone's first stop for their thyroid treatment. I am someone's last stop. So people that feel good on first line of treatment, levothyroxine, Synthroid, tyrosine, Unithroid, those people never see me. They don't need me. They stop at their primary care doc or their endocrinologist and everything's wonderful, supposedly. My practice is built around people who I think are the majority of people on thyroid medications who do not respond to T4-based medication, which accounts for 99.999% of all thyroid medications prescribed. Levothyroxine is actually the, still the number one prescribed medication in America. So obviously this is first-line therapy for hypothyroidism and you know more prescribed than even diabetic medication. So it's a big deal. I give the analogy with these medications of crude oil. Okay, so we are giving America, all these women, crude oil hormone. It's inactive, it's inert, doesn't really help them at all until they take that crude oil and they convert it into gasoline. The same way we don't put crude oil in our car to make it go, we need it to make gasoline to make our car go. If we can't take crude oil and make it into gasoline, we're not really going anywhere in our car. Well, we are pumping everyone full of crude oil and the vast majority of people are not able to efficiently make gasoline from it. And so what that leaves them with is a a gas tank on empty and a bunch of crude oil stockpiled in their garage. (laughs) So they're not really going anywhere. They're persistently having symptoms. You have to be able to convert that T4, that levothyroxine, that Synthroid to T3, to your active thyroid hormone. Okay. And if you are on levothyroxine, Synthroid, Unithroid, Tyrosine, these medications, and you are persistently having symptoms, irrespective of your doctor adjusting your dose up and down for decades or years or whatever, it's because you are a poor converter and you should have a conversation with your clinician about either adding in Cytomel, Liothyronine, talking about armor as an option, but something has to change. And sadly, it is not the dose of people's levothyroxine that needs to be adjusted. Thank you so much. And talk to me about where it's converted. Why are we struggling to be poor converters to begin with? Yeah, let's just start with that. Yeah. So basically your body sequesters your T4 and it even will shunt it to an inhibitory hormone, which is why people feel worse later months down the road. It does that on purpose. So it's not like, oh, I just want to make these people suffer. No. So your body is actually trying to protect you. It's trying to make you lay down, rest and recover. And so if we think about reasons why your body would want you to do that, it's kind of a lot of it is entailed in a standard American lifestyle. It's stress, it's sickness, it's inflammation, it's micronutrient depletion, it's pregnancy, it's even breastfeeding, like it's low caloric intake or restricting your diet, over-exercising. These things make your body go into hibernation so that your metabolism slows down, you slow down, you lay down, and everything just kind of shuts off. And that's 
kind of what hypothyroidism feels like. And that's exactly what, what's happening. And sadly, our, our lifestyle in America propagates that to a large degree, in my opinion, in our food and the way that, you know, we just live. Yeah. Your body's kind of an SOS sign of just like, mm, we're not trying to convert this over. I also know that a lot of us, if we're struggling with the sad American lifestyle, that our liver isn't working properly and our gut isn't working properly where the conversion of this is happening too. And so if you're struggling with gut issues, if you suspect that you have a sluggish liver, which gosh, everyone does, there's a good chance that you're not going to be able to take that crude oil and turn it into gasoline. But your doctor just assumes that your liver is just like, let's do this. like, And your liver is like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> And your gut is not perfect, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's just, it's very, it's a lot of work to manage those two things. So to have an expectation in medicine that we can give these people this medication that they can't actually use is a super sad state of affairs when the ramifications are absolute destruction of your quality of life. Oh my goodness. So I know that everybody is case by case, obviously treated as an individual, but the recommendation is to... What have you found to be the most successful at bringing people back into full function? Yeah. So my goal when people come to see me is one, I want to be a realist. Two, I want to protect them from ever getting worse before they get better. Right. And then three is I never want to ask people to do hard things. Like people don't come to see me and day one, I'm like, Hey, so you're going to be paleo forever. I want you to exercise five days a week. No, like these people are not functioning in their day-to-day -day life. They can't even get their kids to school and put on pants, you know? So the, the goal is, Hey, I want to give you more energy, more capacity, the ability to function at a higher level. And then you take that energy and the capacity and you build more from it. So the easiest way to do that in terms of when someone comes to see me on a high dose of levothyroxine, step one for me is honestly, I'll add cytomel or lyothyronine. I will never pull them off of their levothyroxine and transition them completely to armor. People get worse before they get better. It's difficult. It's challenging. So that's kind of, you know, that's a good piece of information for all the people listening who are already on levo. Like there is a quick thing that you can add. It works fast. It gives you more energy. It speeds up your metabolism. Then you can improve your lifestyle. You can eat better. You can go for walks. You can do all these other sequential things that will improve your quality of life and health. But to start, it's like, I just want to do my job to help these people do well. And then they can do their part later. For people that aren't already on levothyroxine, it definitely, like you said, is a case by case basis, but you know, putting someone on armor is always a great option. It's a combination therapy of T3 and T4. I don't know if I, we never circled back to that full different kinds of medication, but all T4 is what generally people are getting. The other options are pure T3, which is lyothyronine and cytomel. And then the combo, which is armor or NP, and that's part active, part inactive. So part T3, part T4 that comes from actually desiccated pig thyroid gland. So Yes. And so it's really fascinating that it's basically a desiccated thyroid gland. So it's pretty active. It like, it goes to work really fast. And that's why, you know, so many women I find have had such great success with it because it really gives them what they need and it, it, it is quite fast acting. But it's really fascinating that a lot of uh, hospitals or medical systems don't use it. I remember when I was pregnant and I wasn't allowed to bring, I brought my own medication in anyway, but they wanted to supply me with my thyroid medication, especially when I was delivering, it was this whole thing 
to go and find armor. And I was like, I could just bring my stuff in. But this was like during COVID and all this, it was all crazy. And I obviously I brought my, I was like, I don't know what they're going to do. Like, I, I don't know trust that they're going to actually even find my stuff. You know what I'm saying? But it was like this whole thing that they were just like, okay, we're going to get this. Like, what are you taking? Like, okay, we don't really have that. And da, 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 at that pharmacy. And so they had to go and source it from somewhere else, from another pharmacy to get it. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this just feels like such a runaround. So that was, you know, just really being in the trenches and in a system where I just kind of seen how it operated. I was like, wow, like this, they are only offering Synthroid and level thyroid to their patients across the board. Tens of thousands of people are at this facility. And like, it is such an issue to like have to go and find a natural desiccated thyroid medication for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And the the sad thing is I'll see so many women, they'll just be like, well, we're just going to put you on levothyroxine while you're here for four days. Well, your armor is completely gone from your system really quickly. Levothyroxine builds up over weeks. So it's basically like you don't have access to thyroid hormones. So your milk doesn't come in or it's really low. You know, all of these sequela happen because of that. And they're like, oh, it's fine we'll just switch you for a few days. And it's no, it's, it's not the same thing at all, but yeah, most doctors will not prescribe armor. They are still under this false pretense that ended actually in 1984. Before that, prior to that armor wasn't really stable. It wasn't really controlled. It did have swings. It did ebb and flow. It was the oldest thyroid medication out there. It was around half a century before Levo. Um, that all ended in 1984, but by then the medical community had already fully committed to the concept of this is not a stable medication. It can't be predictable. We don't know how much is in each dose when in reality, it is so extraordinarily particular that I can predict where people's labs are going to land on it as I change their medication within like a 0.2 decimal radius, you know, like it is so predictable, but medicine won't sort of evolve with that concept anymore. Mm, that's so good to know. I just wanted to just dive into what was going on there. And if there were just sharing my own personal experiences, if other women are experiencing some of these difficulties, even again, like I said, I already knew I was like, I'm just going to bring my own stuff. Like I'm just going to do my own thing that I know what to do with my own medication. But I just wanted to speak to that. Okay. So I want to just kind of segue now that we've talked a little bit about medications and the differences and, oh, so, you know, if the status quo is that we're just going to be getting crude oil, we're just going to be getting an underactive T4, Synthroid, or Levothyroid, what do we do to go and get a, a natural desiccated thyroid-like armor or even have added T3 to the mix? Like, who do we go and see? I mean, obviously you. Right. I'm trying so hard to expand I mean, there's that only access. so many. <laughs> I know. There's only so many. Like, I want to... I need to just create a clinician course so badly so that people can just have better access to this. But, you know, I would say aim for a functional medicine person that has prescribing capabilities. So you do need, if you have yeah. true hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, you've lost some of that thyroid function, you need medication. So find someone with prescribing capabilities who also kind of niches in a little bit into thyroid. They don't have to do only that, but something that they do frequently needs to be that. If you want to go to your doctor, I find doctors are either open to it and they're like, you know what, we'll try that. We'll go conservative, but I'm open to it. Or they completely shut patients down. And if you get shut down, if you get rejected, if you get mistreated, what I tell people is listen, don't try to convince this doctor to change the way that they practice. If it's clear that they're uninterested in doing so, don't let them you know, treat you poorly because of their ideals of what they think they need to do for thyroid hormones, leave and find someone else. Your doctor works for you. Find someone that wants to partner with you. It's your body. It's your health. If you can't get, 
you know, to the end that you need to get to with your clinician or physician change. Don't be afraid to move on. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. Now I want to dive into the question that everybody wants to know, and I've got a couple other ones, but the big one that often I hear a lot from women is, can I ever get off my thyroid medication? And before I even, actually, I'm going to roll it back just a second Really quickly, I know, you know, dialing in thyroid medication is its own unique art <laughs> and really science rather than art. And let's say art and science, and let's say we do convince our doctor to give us Armour Thyroid and they probably, I mean, do they even know what they're looking for in terms of looking at ideal labs for that person? So if let's say I do convince my doctor and, and they hook me up with some Armour and oh my gosh, ooh girl, I'm feeling so good. You know, is it just really that we should be listening to our bodies and based on if we feel changes and shifts that we should go back and have that conversation? Like, I know that gets a little bit more nuanced, but I was just curious, you know, what do we do in that interim? Obviously we need to get our labs looked at relatively consistently. And even I haven't been that great about it. I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna be straight up honest with everybody. I mean, and it's because I felt so good, you know, and, and some things in my life had not changed. And so, but I just wanted to speak to that. We, we do need that be consistent, but should we be going off how we're feeling as a big part of it? You know, I, the way that I do things is like, I want to optimize everyone's thyroid labs. We look at them about every three months until they are optimal. Basically once women know what they're supposed to feel like, because the reality is, is we are all walking around pushing through and having no clue what we're supposed to feel like. So once I can get people to optimal and they're functioning up here at a high level, women know when they deviate at that point, if they lose 10% of function, they're like, Oh, I need to go back to see McCall. I need to get labs. I need to check in. Something's off. But until you get to that optimal, I really do think you need to be getting your labs checked about every three months, making nuanced adjustments. Even if it's, Hey, you know what labs to check, you can get them, you can order them yourself and you know, make sure that everything's okay. If your doctor doesn't care to see you back for six months, that way, you know, if something's off, you can go back early if something doesn't look right, but yeah, do that until you really are optimal. Okay. And then I, like I said, we will, I will have a link from you where you can look at what optimal lab numbers look like for every single one. And then I want to just ask specifically about Haji's when we're talking about thyroid antibodies you know, I've read a lot of philosophies around this because I know that sometimes for some women, the numbers just never go fully down. So talk to me a little bit about how important it is for those numbers to be at their lowest low, like within their normal range. Yeah. So I'll tell you this, you know, the bulk of women's thyroid symptoms don't come from Hashimoto's. They come from hypothyroidism. Right. So still they can feel great and have antibodies. Mm -hmm. um, the goal with antibodies and regular medicine doesn't even really believe this is a thing. This is definitely more a functional medicine approach. We view autoimmune diseases as inflammatory mediated and modifiable. So our goal with patients at Modern Thyroid Clinic is of course, we wanna make people feel good. We wanna balance their hormones, but we also want to reduce their antibodies as much as we can. So, you know, even if you don't technically get to remission, but your antibodies go from 300 to 75, your TPO antibodies, for example, that is a significant reduction. And sure, you're not quite at the remission level, but that reduction means you're losing less thyroid gland over time. Your inflammation systemically is less. Your risk for other autoimmune diseases is less. So all of these benefits come with antibody reduction, even if people aren't completely in remission, they still get those long-term benefits. 
Thank you so much for that, because I know that there's been a lot of different philosophies, especially in the medical world of like, does it even matter if they've got antibodies or not? But again, they're not looking at the fact that yes, when you've got that level of system-wide inflammation that can lead to other issues down the line. And I can't tell you how many women I've seen with endometriosis and hypothyroid, Hajimoto's or IBS or, you know, just lupus, all, you know, all the different types of autoimmune conditions that are out there. So I just wanted to help you clear that up for, okay, so then let's say we do get Haji's into remission. Let's say we get the numbers low enough. The thyroglobulin and the TPO numbers are looking so sexy, girl. Okay. And now I want to know, McCall, can I get off my medication? And could you please explain where you land on that? Yeah. So in my opinion, this is an enormous misconception. I think a lot of the people propagating the idea that people come off of medication if their antibodies are zero are people that are not able to prescribe medication. So they're almost making false promises to these people that they can fix their thyroid problem. I mean, if they can get your antibodies down, amazing. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that does not mean you do not need medication. So I want to talk through that physiologically. You know, let's say you have Hashimoto's for five years, for 10 years. During those five to 10 years, your body has been attacking your thyroid gland. Okay. It's mounting an autoimmune response against your hormonal secreting tissue for your thyroid. When that happens, it almost eats away at that tissue. It makes it not work. It creates a lack of function or inefficiency of that tissue. And let's say over those 10 years, you've lost 25% of your thyroid gland due to that autoimmune reaction. If your antibodies go to a zero, even after those 10 years, that 25% of your thyroid gland that's gone due to that autoimmune activity, it doesn't grow back. It's still gone, right? So you're still have that loss of hormone secreting tissue that has to be offset with medication. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just wanted to clear the air on that because I know that so many women have read the promise of maybe being able to function without medication. And I know in our last conversation, you said there were rare instances where people, depending on what the cause of the, the hypothyroidism was, that there were rare scenarios where it was possible. But again, pretty rare. I think one of them was nutrient deficiencies, like that there was a major nutrient deficiency situation that was fixed and all was well because we addressed it fast enough. Yeah. I call those people pure conversion disorders. So those people actually produce enough hormone. They make enough inactive hormone crude oil T4. They just don't activate it well enough. So sometimes I'll put them on active thyroid hormone, allow them to have the energy, the capacity to clean up their lifestyle, to reduce their stress, to eat better, to reduce inflammation, to fix their microbiome, to improve their liver function. All of these things that drive activation of their hormones. If I can improve their lifestyle enough, sometimes they can come off of that medication successfully. And it depends on your labs. It all depends on your labs. Yeah. And that's what we're ultimately, well, you said it's not very often that that's actually the case. Let's talk about, I want to, one of the questions I get, cause I know that there is a, a connection and, you know, and I'd love for you to go into kind of how deep that connection is the relationship with your adrenals and your thyroid. And is it specifically your adrenals and your thyroid, or is it the stress response system and the overactivation of that stress response system that is actually driving the thyroid to, to have to overwork? I mean, I'm, obviously the adrenals are getting whipped too, but I just feel like both are getting whipped. I don't know if the adrenals are causing the thyroid issue or if it's the perceived stressors or the stress of your life or the crazy to-do list that you've got going on that are actually the real drivers. 
Right. I think it's more the second. So I definitely think it's our lifestyle. It's our stress or our perceived stress or inflammation that's activating our adrenals, increasing our cortisol. And it's just this back and forth relationship. You know, your adrenals don't allow your thyroid hormones to activate and function. When your thyroid hormones aren't functioning, your adrenals are compensating. And so they're getting burnout. And I'll tell you truly, truly, like a hundred percent of my patients that have thyroid disorders, which are a hundred percent of my patients also have adrenal dysregulation. Mm-hmm. Like they are just so inherently tied. Unlike anything else I've seen, it's just when one is off, the other is off and vice versa. Thank you. Okay, good. Good to know. I just wanted to just speak into that. I know that you give adrenal protocols as well, because you know, it, it, when we look at the whole scheme of it all, that's a major player here. I also know that insulin resistance is playing a role. I also know that our hormones are playing a role. I also know that your gut health is playing a role. I mean, it's, it's a very dynamic you know, healing protocol that we're looking at when it comes to looking at all of it. The other thing I wanted to ask is you know, specifically on a cellular level, can we have cellular kind of SOS signals around hypothyroidism, basically that the cells are deciding that they're just not taking on more T3, that they go into a, this is a theory that I heard by a couple of practitioners who felt like we would get cellular hypothyroidism before we'd actually get the, that it would actually impact our thyroid. Yeah. So basically it's almost the same concept as, as like a T3 pooling or an increase in your inhibitory hormone. It's not actually a thyroid problem at all. It's, it's outside of the thyroid for sure. Absolutely. Because the reality is, is our thyroid isn't secreting our T3. It's not the thing that regulates that. That happens on a cellular level. That happens after we, you know, it hits our liver. It it definitely travels and goes to the rest of the body. So yeah, I mean, I can't say I've seen that in the science, but I definitely see that your body inherently tries to keep you from accepting T3 when it is in a stressed state, physically, emotionally, whatever it is. And that's what I wanted to speak into is that it it can be on a cellular level too, where your cells are like, oh, this is stranger danger. Like, I know that if you come in, you're forcing me to activate you know, and I don't have the bandwidth. Like maybe it's your mitochondria that are like, nah, no more T3 here. We can't run any more <laughs> of the cellular processes that T3 is demanding to drive. Our body's smart. You know, it, it serves us on purpose. Sometimes it feels like it's out to get us, but it's not. It's really trying to protect us. It's just, it, it over protects us at times. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. It's just like our brain. Just and hence why we have this stress response system is your brain is just trying to protect you from something that happened to you a long time ago. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and it just ends up being, it just, you know, it not, doesn't always serve us at all. And so your brain is trying to keep you safe, not trying to keep you, you know, emotionally resilient. Okay. Now I want to talk about, you know, it, it's one thing, medications, obviously a major game change here, getting the Hajimoto's antibodies in check, a major player here. What else can we do? We We do know that there are root causes. We do know that lifestyle is driving a lot of this behavior. So what have you seen be some of the biggest needle movers? Let's start with diet and let's move into nutrient deficiencies, obviously lifestyle strategies. Like what are the things that you have found that you're like, when my, when my patients are willing to do these things, things move in flow a lot faster. How do we get to the she exactly? How do we go from feeling like crap to like, man, I'm back to being a superwoman while honoring my body? Yes. I love it. So one of the first things I love to do tips and tricks for that is green juice. 
So I try again, it's all about what can I make these people do that doesn't require a lot of effort for them, but will flood them with what they need. Mm -hmm. And green juice is such a potent way to get a ton of micronutrients, get seven pounds of vegetables into one serving, you know, readily available without fiber, your body completely absorbs it very different than smoothies. So that way you just flood your body with micronutrients. So that's a really good way to Again, give these people a little more energy, give them a little more capacity. Um, as far as food sort of restrictions, there are a hundred percent patterns that I see after testing thousands of women with Hashimoto's and what their body reacts to that drives inflammation that creates Hashimoto's. So the number one food group that I see in Hashimoto's patients is dairy for sure, probably twice as often as gluten. Number two is gluten, Mm -hmm. but strangely, I would have thought before I went into this, the opposite, Yeah. Um, but objectively, measurably speaking, dairy, then gluten. After that, I see legumes, grains, eggs, nuts. So that's sort of descending order. By the time you get to nuts, it's 5% of people. Like it's just not that common. So if you want a really quick road, try to go dairy-free for three months, check your antibodies before and check them after. If you want to up the ante, go dairy-free, gluten-free for those three months and see how much your antibodies get impacted, how much your inflammation reduces, your joint pain, your you know GI distress, that kind of thing. So food is a huge one. And then ultimately too, like if we keep it at it, at its most simple form, like what if you just took out processed foods, like yeah, oh, what yeah. if just stop eating out of a box, you yeah. know, you don't even have to get as complicated as dairy free if you just eat real food. So it really can go a long, long way. Another one that I think is a shortcut for the metabolic dysfunction that I see in my patients is intermittent fasting. So hypothyroidism drives loss of insulin sensitivity, loss of your blood sugar metabolism, completely destroys your ability to maintain your weight, lose weight. Intermittent fasting works on that particular mechanism to start to repair and resensitize those processes. And in patients who maybe can't do that, I say, look, don't intermittent fast, but save all of your carbs for the evening. So you don't eat overnight. You wake up, you eat lean protein, non-starchy veggies. You keep your blood sugar low all day. And so it's like you're intermittent fasting, even though you're not keep it low, keep it low. You eat your carbs and your sugar in the evening, it spikes. And then you have a full 24 hours to reset that again. Even without intermittent fasting, you start to unravel that metabolic damage. Interesting. Yeah. Gosh, it's so funny. I want to tap into this a little bit. I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. I just love it. And I think that it's, you know, when we can do it, you know, women are a little bit different. Like I love a fasting according to our cycle too. Like there are definitely windows of our cycle where, you know, we have more resilience and wiggle room. And then other times, especially the end of our cycle where our bodies are like, please don't do like, I'm not ready for this. But then also I was curious with the dynamic, especially with adrenal issues and intermittent fasting, you know, because I know you've looked at this a lot. Can we at least get away with a circadian based fast? Like an, like a 12 hour, we have dinner, we make sure that our food is digested before our bedtime. And then we, and let's say it's seven to seven or six to six, something like that. And that should probably be okay, even if we are healing our adrenals and our our stress response system as well. Yeah. So I get that question a lot and there are pros and cons. It's a give and take system. So my balance is I want women no more than um, a 16 hour fast. So you could even do a 12 to start. And a lot of women do. And if you're really tight on those windows of outside of that 12 hours, that gives your body a lot of repair time. So I never recommend um, more than a 16 hour fast. And I honestly only recommend women do intermittent fasting four or five days a week when, you know, leading up to your period, if you feel like you wake up and you're hungry, you eat, don't fast that day or 
you know, stop eating early, you listen to your body. It does not need to be this extreme dogmatic every day, all day. But what I find is the reduction in inflammation that these people are getting is reducing their adrenal burden. You know, sure, maybe their adrenals are a little bit activated, um, especially if they wake up and have coffee and no food and really push back their eating window or go to extremes. But the reality is, is when you weigh the pros and the cons, the reduction in people's stress response all day, every day from not walking around so darn inflamed all the time because they're constantly dealing with food. Yeah, those poor mitochondria. They're just like, stop eating. I know. They're just, no, there's no break. There's no break for them. (laughs) Okay. So good to know. I was just curious. I do speak a lot about metabolically healthy meals in the morning, but I'm also concerned about women's insulin resistance in the evening. So I ask women to push their mealtime back. If they're going to bring carbs in, you know, I've worn a CGM a lot over the last couple of years, McCall, and I've been so fascinated. Like even a low carb dinner at five looks a lot different on my CGM than it does at 7.30. So like, let's just say it's like a big, robust, metabolically friendly chicken salad. Like I am no sweet potatoes, nothing like that. There's like, it is just greens, veggies, you know what I'm saying? And some chicken and, uh, you know, an olive oil and and red wine vinegar or something like that as a dressing. I maybe have a 10 milligram per deciliter jump, like stays within the sexy place I want it to be. But if I were to bump up that same meal to 7.30, girl, it's like a 30 point jump. So it's just really interesting. And and it could be, I mean, I haven't looked at my my fasting insulin in a while, but I know that I've headed towards insulin resistance it was a really fascinating stat that I read a couple weeks ago. By the age of 45, 88% of us women will have insulin resistance and will have some level of metabolic dysfunction. And we are more likely to be obese and overweight than men by 45, 80, like literally almost 90% of women out there. And so it's so interesting. I'm, I'm playing so much with this too. Uh, intermittent fasting, I think is one of the best things that we can do to scale back the insulin resistance, but man, it's, and I think maybe some of it too, when we're at, by the time we're 45, our thyroid hormones lower, insulin is more resistant at that point. Like there's a lot of things working against us, but I was just curious because I, I often recommend a metabolically healthy breakfast, but then I'm also help, really mindful. I've seen so many of my women with their CGM levels just skyrocket when they add carbs in at night and they find that in the morning there's a lot of variability too. Like I'm, I always just wonder, like I'm always like carbs for lunch. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? That's what most people say. Yeah. And I think if you're not trying, if you're not trying to manipulate the data where it stays mm-hmm. low all day so that you can have that prolonged low blood sugar, low insulin, I definitely think carbs for breakfast, carbs for lunch, you can burn them off when you're active, you're moving around. It's only that subset of people that are trying to false intermittent fast Got to it. Try keep it low and okay. raise it in the evening. But that's fascinating. I want to dig into that about same meal or dinner compared to lunch. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I mean, the coolest things that I noticed with that CGM is you eat a meal and if you get up and walk, your blood sugar does not change at all. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I have, I mean, I have so many hacks that I love to talk about, especially as a woman who has, I mean, I'm so grateful to be under your care as well, but it's something I'm always being mindful of. And at the end of the day, our thyroid is a big part of our cardiometabolic health, but there's definitely other drivers that are so silent for us as women. And, and then all of a sudden they just slam us and it's kind of where it's almost a little too late. And so I've been so 
interested and fascinated by all of this because I'm like, okay, what? Because I find that where the levers really need to be pulled, I mean, early as possible, but it's like 30s and early 40s, like you got to get it together or it's going to be so challenging, such a massive uphill battle once we're you know at menopause and beyond to really transform our metabolic health. And at the end of the day, our cardiovascular mortality rate is just greater than men. We are dying of cardiovascular disease more than men are, and it's going under the radar. And there's so much that is highly preventable around it that, that it doesn't have to be our fate. Absolutely. And I do, I agree hundred percent. The earlier you intervene and you start to move those cogwheels, the better, because the unraveling of late stage metabolic dysfunction is extraordinarily painful and slow. And so, yeah, the sooner you can get on that, the better. Absolutely. I love that you're digging into all those tools. That's so cool. Well, and I think thyroid care and and being and monitoring our thyroid health is such a critical piece of this. You know, it's a part of that puzzle. You know, it needs to be accounted for on top of hemoglobin A1C, on top of looking at triglycerides and cholesterol levels, on top of looking at blood pressure. Like those are one of the silent indicators that we're just missing and that we're failing women at 100%. And so I just wanted to bring that into the conversation of the greater outside of not feeling great and feeling like crap and finally not having enough excuses for why. You know, I, you know, with a toddler, as you know, you know, he, I was, t- I was telling you before we got started, we've all had this cold and Kingston gave it to me. Us, girl, I swear I wasn't going to get it. And I was like, I'm not going to get it. I haven't gotten the last three. I'm a mom. My immune system's better. And he took me down, but then it's come back around for him. So last night I was up, I must've been seven or eight times. My poor baby, he wasn't fevering, but he was close to it. And the only thing that's going to bring him comfort is me. And I did not know I was going to be up that much last night. And I felt it today. I was, you know, and it's just, it's par for the course of where you're at in your journey. One of the key unique risk factors for cardiovascular disease in women or metabolic dysfunction too, is a lack of sleep. And they point to it being hormone changes. And yes, it is. But let me just talk about it being motherhood. You know what I'm saying? Like that wasn't even mentioned. So I just wanted to just speak into that a little bit. Like we've got to be looking at all of these levers of, you know, what's driving, you know, our illness, our sickness. And yeah, it can be very nuanced, you know? Yeah. Well, I have to just say you are crushing this interview for being up eight times last night. Thank you, Eddie. (laughs) Bow down. That's impressive. I was I, girl, I was so ready. I was so looking forward to it. I've been sick all week, but I was like, by Thursday at noon, I am ready for this interview. I was so stoked. Is there, I feel like I turned a lot of the stones over, but was there any stone left unturned that you think, because I know we're, you know we're well over time in this conversation, but I really wanted to go deep in it that I missed. Oh, nutrient deficiencies. I wanted to speak into that. Yes. And, and tell me nutrient deficiencies in what regard? thyroid fatigue or even and autoimmune condition like what are some of the things that we should be looking at yeah yeah so i would definitely say a huge one that my two favorites basically my two favorites are selenium so you can take 200 micrograms of selenium for three months measure antibodies before and after and research shows that they'll reduce i see that in my practice not in everyone but definitely in a decent portion of people my other favorite 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 nutrient to supplement for people with hashimoto's is glutathione so either oral, like 500 milligrams of glutathione before bed. But what I really love is like the glutathione cream Mm -hmm. that you can actually put on your thyroid gland. I have my patients do it twice a day. Glutathione is our body's most potent antioxidant, anti-inflammatory agent. It directly combats inflammation that's driving Hashimoto. So you put that stuff right here on your thyroid gland, it's going to absorb transdermally and be most potent where you're putting it on. It's just so good. It's also good for anti-aging, for just overall inflammatory reduction. 
Mm, love that. And then get your other vitamins. You know, I'm just making sure you're getting your B vitamins, making sure that you're supporting your liver, detoxification pathway, zinc. Yeah. And then let's talk about movement. I was just curious because I, I mean, walking, obviously we talked about walking for blood sugar levels and I think, you know, easy movement. Again, like you talked about when patients first come in the office, they're just trying to get their pants on, you know, they're just trying to get in the door. But then over time, one of the things that I learned for me, working out was definitely burning me out. It was definitely finally what kind of was the thing that tipped me over of like, okay, something's really not right. Something's wrong here. And so what I've moved to and, and, and tell me if this is, is right, but is resistance training and shorter bouts of it. So I really want to focus on that muscle mass. I really want to focus on getting stronger, but then also not burning myself out in my workouts that is driving more burnout overall. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head. So I'll tell you the only people that come to see me that I can't fix are the burnout overworker outer people who just absolutely, honestly, they, they kill their adrenals. They destroy it. And so my gauge for that with my patients is one, I try to tell people to stay away from hit and CrossFit unless they are so resilient to it. But really the bigger gauge is look, I want you working out to the point that you are left feeling more energetic later that day. And you're not laying down. You're not feeling sick. You're not feeling depleted. That's a good sign that you're overdoing it. So, you know, my favorites are of course, like Pilates, yoga are easy walking and weight training. So weight training has long-term cardio or metabolic maintenance kind of support where it increases your basal metabolic rate. It helps you burn more fat. Um, it allows you to retain your muscle mass as you age. So definitely slow weight training not circuit training where you're just hitting it one after the next and your heart rate's 200 the whole time. Slow and steady weight training, again, not tired after, mixed in with some walking, some yoga, that kind of thing is my optimal for thyroid patients for sure. Perfect. Anything... Okay, good. Yeah. And when you look phenomenal, gosh, you are just like a sexy Dr. Vixen. Oh my goodness. I think that every time I see a picture of you, I'm like, oh my goodness, girl. Ooh. So we went over food, nutrients that we want to make sure that we're hitting, movement that is going to be good for our bodies and anything, anything else. I know those are the big, big, big three, but obviously in stress reducing, and also, I know that you recommend glandulars for adrenals and adaptogenic herbs for adrenals too. I, I haven't been able to be on them, those because of breastfeeding and, and yes, and, and pregnancy, which gosh, has felt like the longest journey ever, but worthwhile, obviously. And I'm so excited to get back on those. Those I want to just mention, because I know some women, their adrenals really need desperate repair, and you've got an amazing supplement protocol for that. Phenomenal. Anything else that I am, that I'm missing that are like, that gets us on the fast track to feeling back to our former selves. You know, the one last thing I would toss in is mitochondrial support. Like if you're doing your thyroid, you're doing your adrenal support, you still have some level of fatigue or brain fog, a mitochondrial support. My favorite is designs for health, mito NRG. It's amazing. It's not mitochondrial support can be very expensive. A lot of pills. This one's very well balanced kicks in immediately. It's not exogenous stimulation. It just allows your mitochondria, your energy producers to produce more energy endogenously. And I find that is really great for a kickstart for people as well. Nice. Can women breastfeeding take mito NRG? I haven't looked at the ingredient list yet, so I don't know. So you look at it. You look yeah, at it. I do look. not let women take adrenal support, like adrenal, that kind of thing, but I actually do let them take mitochondrial NRG. I would do it myself. So I'll let you look at the ingredients. should have been asking. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I am obsessed with mitochondrial efficiency. And so there's a lot of things that I 
do personally to boost my mitochondrial health. I mean, that is the game changer for so many of us. And we just want to feel good again. So I'm going to go take a look at mitochondrial NRG. And I know that people can't get a hold of the adrenal support supplement that you recommend, but are there other ones that people could get a hold of that you would recommend? You know, sometimes now I kind of feel like they almost can. It's by orthomolecular adrene-all. You can order it on Amazon. It's really expensive. You can order it from our supplement store, modernthyroidclinic.com. But I think other places, it's like loosening up a little bit about access. So that is hands down my favorite adrenal support by far. And then I love just plain old ashwagandha in the evening by almost any brand, but those are my go-tos and something that I use with almost all of my patients. And are you talking like would 500 milligrams of ashwagandha do the trick, give or take? I start with 500 and sometimes I'll increase to a thousand if people are really stressed. Yeah. Always at night. I don't ever dose it in the day. It's kind of like drinking a tall glass of red wine in the morning. It's not really how I want to feel. Yeah. So it's I so zen. It. it is so zen. I like to pair it with a with a holy basil when I was with a tea too. Like I have a little holy basil tea and then do my ashwagandha. Yeah. And, and also, by the way, when you were looking at the list of things to get rid of ladies, alcohol is off that list. So if you're looking for the alcohol experience without the wine that is disrupting your liver and your blood sugar and all the other things, I'm going to say, you know, this is your cocktail right here. (laughs) Uh, McCall, my goodness, I feel like we got, I mean, we could go into so much more nitty gritty detail, but I feel like we really covered a lot. And what I want to recommend everybody, because I know so many of you are thinking, oh my goodness, should I just go get my labs run? Yes, please go get your labs run. But also I want you to check in on modernthyroidclinic.com. There are so many great resources there. This is the place to be, the place to go. McCall, honey, where else would you love us to come and find you? Find me on TikTok. It's my newest, latest adventure. It's so fun over there. So oh, I'll I see you there. It. Okay, good. And then we'll have the link for you to go and check out TikTok as well. Thank you so much for taking up so much of your time today, girl, to answer all these questions. And I just, I'm so grateful to you. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. I feel like I just, we got to hang out I know. across the country. It was wonderful. So thanks for I, the hang sesh. Yes, please. Thank you. So it's pretty clear from the way that we had our conversation today in this interview that not only are we dear friends, and I am so grateful for her to be my practitioner, but I am absolutely in love with McCall's message and her standpoint and position when it comes to really optimizing thyroid care, which I think is so critical for every single woman out there. I am so grateful for the immense support that she has provided me along with thousands of other women and people. I know men have it too, but again, 75% of women do have Hajimoto's thyroiditis of all the diagnosed cases, people that are struggling with thyroid dysfunction. I think one of the most poignant parts of that conversation is that like so many other hormones in our body over time, especially as we inch towards menopause, our thyroid hormones hormone is probably going to take a hit as well. And it has a lot to do with our gut and our liver function and also just the the sensitivity that our thyroid gland is, right? It just takes a big beating when it comes to environmental toxins and our metabolic health. And so it's just something really important that we need to be looking at throughout our entire lifetime to ensure that our thyroid levels are great and that we feel great and that we function great. Again, I want you to strongly go and check her out we weren't able to get into optimal lab ranges today. We weren't able to look at, you know, some of the nuanced lab testing because it just can get so muddled in the conversation. But she has that information very accessible and available to you at her 
website, modernthyroidclinic.com. Again, the link for the show notes is going to be for episode 499 today. Super easy to find. Also, you will find the giveaway link to go and enter after you rate and review the show. And if there's a friend or family member that you think need to be listening to this episode, who you think suspect have a thyroid issue, or they've been trying to figure out if they've got a thyroid issue, please share this episode with them. You can find it at drmarisa.com slash 499, or just send it to them via iTunes or whatever platform you are looking for. How I like to do it is I screenshot the image and then send over the link to my friends and family. I mean, get in where you fit in. As always, thank you so much for coming in and listening to the Essentially You podcast. If this show and this episode has served you in any way, be sure to subscribe and rate the show and enter the giveaway for some epic prizes. Until the next episode, have an amazing day. 